and take a stretch, and then you're going to sit right back down. You good? Can you do that? You don't have to shake hands. I want you to stand. I, I need, boy, you guys, we used to do this in the middle of service. So now you're going to have to help me. Stay standing. We're just going to do three deep breaths. You ready? One, two, three. How about doing a festal shout? You know what that is? You're going to repeat the word hallelujah to me. You ready? Hallelujah. 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 Oh, man, stretch one more time. Have a seat. You're good to go. And you're like, why did you just do that, Pastor Kerry? Because I watch some of you. It's hard to stay awake. Yeah. Some of you got that sleeping disease. It doesn't matter what I say. You're, you know, that kind of thing. No. So hopefully we won't be uh, too long or cumbersome on that today. I want to uh, encourage you, though, that this uh, study that we're in, in 1 John, on light and life, is really a transformational study for all of us. Whether you are a seeker this morning and you've never really checked out God in your life and what place he could have, or maybe you've walked with God and had a relationship with Jesus long term. The Apostle John was the senior statesman at this time when he wrote the letter to the Christians, most likely in Ephesus and around the Turkey, uh, Asia Minor areas, it was known then. And he was adamant about seeing these Christians stay alive and wake and on mission. Because things drift. Have any of you ever started a business and it was on mission, but then it started to drift? Maybe you're in a marriage, and it, it started on mission, right? To have a great marriage, and it started to drift. Things naturally fade. Things get dulled. And you've got to continue to come and wake it up and keep it alive. And so the Apostle John, who was probably like 95, and maybe he started following Jesus as one of those first 12 disciples in his teenage years. He's been doing this a long time, but here he is. Senior statesman, speaking to the church, saying, wake up, stretch, shout the hallelujahs, let's be alive. And he's asking them to do something. He's asking them to do an examination. It was the great spiritual leader, John Wesley, many, many decades ago now from England, came to the U.S. and did some things. John Wesley established what we know today as the Methodist Church. Um, there's also the Wesleyan Church and some other movements that he was fundamental of being a part of. Even some of the alliance roots that we're a part of go back to that holiness Wesleyan movement. But uh, he created methods, and that's where the Methodism came from with some new methods. And one of the things that John Wesley would do, and some of you are familiar with this, is, is he would take a group of people and put them in a circle. And he would ask them a question. Right out of the blocks, right up front. The question was not, how did your week go? The question was not, uh, how are things going with the kids? The question was not, Where's your financial business headed? You got some good stocks you're hanging on to? The question wasn't, uh, is, is your health hanging in there? He could ask all those questions. His question that they had to answer one to another was this question. How are things with your soul? 
how are things with your soul? Oh, I don't know. I want to answer that one. That's a little like meddling, you know, that soul, that spirit part, the interior part that I try to keep hidden. You know, I'm up here, hey, I had a good week, how's it going, high five, fist bumps, those kinds of things we've gotten used to during COVID, right? No. How are things with your soul? And when I was in graduate school, that was uh, one of the things that uh, a practical theology professor did with a group of us men. Every week we would meet, how are things with your soul? And you could stay high, you could go low, you could fake it, you could be really transparent. But the question called you into self-examination of your spirit and your interior being. You see, you were created as spiritual beings. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. One of these days, your body will be lied to rest. I was reminded by my older sister this week that my father would have turned 95 this week. He passed away a number of years ago, but I'm thinking, yeah, dad dad would not have been a good 95-year-old. That body would not have been hanging on. These bodies will fade. They will be laid to rest. But your spirit, your soul, will last forever. Forever. God created your spirit, your soul, if you will, and that's the part that he wants to communion with. And he will seek to redeem you and change you. And if you become a follower of Jesus, one of these days you will be clothed with a new body, an immortal body that will live forever. And some of you this morning going, hallelujah, because if you ask me about my health today, it's not well. Especially with the chillier weather today. Just couldn't get it moving, right? Well, the Apostle John was asking for some self-examination with individuals concerning their soul. How are things going? How are you living it out? And with the churches at that time. And so we're going to dive right back in to where we left off basically last week. But I want you to take this letter again. Not as a nice, hey, this is a nice Bible study. I went to church. Check that off my list. (laughs) Feel good. No. I want you to use this as a personal experience and let the Word of God examine your heart and let the Word of God ask you, how are things with your soul? How are things with your soul? So with that, we're going to jump in at chapter 2, where we left off last week. But I want to read the first two verses out of the message. The message is a paraphrase uh, written by Eugene Peterson, and he translates it this way or paraphrases it this way. I write this, dear children, and let me pause there. The Apostle John was speaking in chapter 1 most likely to critics, people that were against the pure faith, and there was Gnostics and others that were corrupting the faith. He was addressing them. Some of you say this, and I say this kind of thing. Then in two, he switches and he refers to dear children. In fact, it's about four sometimes in the letter that he references dear children. Now, that's a little bit like, hey, come on, what it is. But when you're 95 and you can say that, if he was that age, 90-something, you're right, you're probably, okay, call me uh, in my 50s that uh, I'm a child. 
So this is him addressing, not in a demeaning way, but addressing those who are children of God. Those who are in the church body, those who are followers of Jesus, who have adhered to the faith, but maybe they're getting a little wobbly, a little sideways. Things aren't quite going well with their soul. I write this, dear children, to you. To guide you out of sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a high priest in the presence of the Father. Jesus Christ. Oh, our righteous Jesus. In other words, he's saying, wherever you're going, however it's happening, kids, followers of Jesus, know this. You got one who is before the Father interceding for you. He is truly the high priest. He is our priest. He is our friend. He is our advocate. He is there defending us, representing us before God Almighty, for He is God Himself. In verse 2, it's paraphrased this way, When He, Christ, served as a sacrifice for our sins, He solved the sin problem for good. Not only ours, but the whole world's. So why does the Alliance send missionaries to other countries to change their culture and make them more American? No. You need to be culturally connected. When you are a missionary, an international worker, going, learning their language, learning their customs, identifying with the beauty that God's created that environment. But every country, every nation, every people group, every territory, every uh, uh, individual around the globe has the same problem that you and I have here this morning. We have a sin problem. All the way back to Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, there has been a sinful nature that's carried through with humankind. So it's not just a sin problem in your life. It's a sin problem in everyone's life. It's the sin problem in all the world. And so John is saying that he took care of business. When he sacrificed himself on the cross, was raised from the grave, he paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins can be forgiven, and he represents us now to God. We can have the soul repaired. The soul can be reconnected as it was intended to be connected with God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? What did they do after they sinned? They hid. What did God do? God shows up walking in the garden as He had been walking with them in some type of physical spirit presence. And guess what? God lost His little people. And He asked them, where are you? No. He knew exactly where they were. He asked them where they are so that they would reckon with the examination of their soul, their heart, that something had been broken. The relationship God intended for the created human beings that were made in His image to honor and worship Him was broken because of sin. They chose to defy God, take the free will that they were giving, and walk a different direction. Sin came in the world, severed that relationship and God showed up to repair it. And the first thing he did was get them to own up to where they're at. I have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And my sin separates me from God. 
Now, this morning, I could be going through a nice little series of some nice little how-to points and let's all live a better life and get out of here. But what our world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ to repair the sin damage that's in our world, but that's in every human being, beginning with me. And today, as I prayed coming in, I'm like, Lord, thank you that I get to do this, that I get to uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, that he came to deal with the restoration and the mending of the soul back into relationship with God. But the first thing that needs to happen is the acknowledgement that there is sin. Just don't like that word. That's not PC, politically correct or culturally acceptable today. Shortcomings, growth areas, no sin. Sin means missing the mark, the mark that God intended. And he intended for you and I to be in a, not just a relationship with him, to be in a dynamic relationship with him. It was a number of decades uh, ago that uh, there was a, a famous, witty uh, author, Catholic theologian, um, a very popular person in Great Britain by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And the Times of London chose to send a uh, letter out to some of the famous uh, author or people that uh, were in the country and get them to respond to a question. And their question was this. Their question was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton has a lot of quotes, a lot of great writings, some of them very deep. His book on orthodoxy, I remember reading through in my younger years. I'm like, I had to read one. You know, it's one of those things where you had to read the paragraph five times. But once you got it, you're like, whoa, that's powerful and impactful. G.K. Chesterton, he just simply responded, it's believed, and said uh, to the Times with this shortest quote, and one he's probably the most known for, he said this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. You see, there's a sin problem with me, and, and all the world ills come from fallenness of sin. Yes, there's a creation has fallen because of sin, but human beings in our sin. What's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, Carrie Bowman. That's acknowledgement of where you're at when it comes to seeing the soul care issue met and dealt with in your life. I um, told some of you the other day that uh, I have uh, been on the lookout for critters in my backyard. I had the opportunity to plant my yard a year and a half ago. I've never mowed my yard because the rabbits choose to feast on my yard and leave a lot of marbles on the ground while they're at it. And um, I actually did mow my yard this last uh, two weeks ago for the first time after I spoke to you, and I'm very happy about that. I'm going to mow it again when you come for the gathering and uh, hopefully keep dealing with the rabbit problem. So rabbits are coming back, and so when I walk out at night to check my yard, um, I can't see. It's dark, right? 
And I mentioned the other day that I went out and I uh, turned on uh, the light and I saw, fifth, was it, 13, 15 rabbits. And that really got me to work harder. In fact, yesterday I was studying on my, uh, in my uh, California patio room and this little teeny rabbit, he had the gall just to walk up and look at me. <laughs> I'm like, man, you're being defiant to me. Well, when it comes to examining the soul, it's like examining my backyard. I can't see it, what's going on, unless I do this. And this is one of my flashlights. This is one of my flashlights. You loved that, didn't you? I picked on all of you that just got blinded. Just be glad that I didn't do this and uh, put it on that flashing thing, because that really gets you. But this gets the rabbits really freaked out. And so I flash the light on when I go out. Why? Because you can't see in the dark things that are there unless you turn a light on. And so in this series, Light and Life, we've called it from 1 John, John is saying God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to be in the light yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. God is light and when it comes to how are things with your soul, you need a flashlight. And that flashlight is the light of God, the light of God through His Word, shining in your heart to do some self-examination. And when you do the self-examination, you start to see that there are areas that God needs to change. Now, there's three things you can do when light is shining. I'll put it away so you all don't, there you go, freak out too much anymore. There you go, just for you, Evan. And so uh, we are... uh, uh, Taking this idea of light in our soul, how are things with your soul, to be able to grow, whether we are uh, looking to have a relationship with God or we're in a relationship with God, but we can purposefully do three things when that light comes to shine. The first thing that is a barricade to light is ignoring the light, refusing to examine ourselves. And so I mentioned it last week. I just pulled it back today. Is one of the most important things you can do is say, I will go in for an examination. Some of us don't like to do that medically. That's me, right? My wife gave me an appointment. She says, you're going in next month. I'm like, okay. So they'll do all some of the checkout to see how healthy or not that I am, right? Well, the light of God and his word examines our light, but we can ignore the light. I don't see any light. I'm just going to choose to walk in darkness. And we're refusing to allow self-examination. If you are a good self-examiner of how are things with your soul personally, then great. Maybe you need to be in a relationship with someone, whether once a week or once a month, you sit down in all sincerity and say, how are things with your soul? Because it's a self-examination that needs to go on. But we can choose not to do that to just ignore the light. The second thing is you can close your eyes. I can't see anything. I don't, I don't know. We deny the possibility of sin. Now that was true of the Gnostics, of which he was addressing in uh, the first part of his letter, but I also find it today true. I grew up around some traditions that people thought that they could become so holy, if you will, mature in the faith that they never sinned anymore. I'm sorry, you really have to redefine what sin is as some viable action that everybody can see publicly, I suppose. But most of my sins aren't in an action, public-oriented sense. You know where they're at? They're in my heart. They're in my mind. They're attitudes, right? 
There are attitudes of uh, uh, frustration or indignation, right? Anger that's not a righteous kind of anger. Or maybe impure thoughts that start to fly across my mind. There, there is sin in my life. If I close my eyes and deny the possibility of it, I'm not going to find healing. I'm not going to work my way to some beautiful, sweet fellowship with a God who is light. I need to let the light examine me. I need to realize there's the possibility. And the third thing is obscuring the light. Obscuring the light. Rationalizing the sin away. Well, that's not really a sin. I mean, everybody sort of does that, right? I know what Scripture says along that side, uh, line of sexual morality or honesty or integrity. But, you know, I just sort of let some things slip. And I think God's understanding it. I'm marching on to my next day. We rationalize sin away. We redefine it. It's like if you got a bunch of pizza sauce on you, and, and I was dressing this morning, and I came, and I had some spot on me, and I'm like, oh, is that water, or is that uh, hair gel, or is that deodorant? Is that going to go away? Am I going to stand up there in front of people, and they go, what's that spot on Pastor Carrie up there for? Or those of you watching online, it's magnified a little bit, Right. And we're, well, it's, I don't know, it's not really there, it's sort of going to go away, so maybe we're just sort of closing our eyes to it, or obscuring the light, I just don't want to see it, maybe I'll hide it this way, and you know, it's like not really pizza sauce, right? That's just a, you know, a decorative kind of thing, or they'll never notice it. We have all kinds of excuses. Don't do it. God's hardwired you with something. It's called guilt. And guilt is not a bad thing. There is false guilt. And you can be in religious circles when they're saying this, this, and total. And it's like, oh, yeah, I always feel guilty. And some of us, you know, we're guilt kings or guilt queens all the time. We're, we're thinking we're in that camp. But there is true guilt. It's like if you touch a hot furnace or a hot plate and you pull your hand off, you are sensitized to that heat for your protection. The guilt is there. What happens in our culture is they try to tell you you are not guilty because there is no right or wrong sin. And so what you are guilty of is you're not guilty of sin. You are guilty of guilt. So just stop it. No. That's not how we're made. Rightful, true guilt comes from conviction because we are moral beings. There is right and wrong. And so when you have sinned, you should, oh, there's, there's guilt. And you acknowledge the guilt because you acknowledge your sin. Because guess what? If you're guilty of guilt, we don't have anything for you this morning. But if you're guilty of sin, guess what? We have a Savior a high priest friend who died, who was raised from the grave, who took upon us all of our sin, past, present, and future, and he dealt with the sin issue. And so come to the Savior afresh and anew. This is the hope. This is the good news of Scripture. We got a sin problem in our world. It begins with me, and I have been guilty of sin. But praise God, I have a Savior who sets me free from that sin. I have been freed, oh, like we were singing. I'm like, Lord, today there are people in this room or watching online who you are bound by sin and guilt. 
and we are not here to heap more guilt on you. That's not my job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does that because He's calling you into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we have hope to offer. We have freedom to offer. Not just every seven days, but every seven seconds that we walk around in our world to other people. And that's what our world needs. So, he starts off his chapter 2. He didn't put them in chapters, you know. They broke them down to chapters later. He's just rolling on his letter. Repositioning the high priest that we have in Christ Jesus. But then he wants to discuss something. He says this in verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In these few weeks, we've separated two terms. We've separated the term relationship and the word fellowship, all right? Let me add to that today. The difference between those two words is union with Christ and communion with Christ. Union with Christ means that you are in a relationship with Him. You've asked for your sins to be forgiven. You've invited Christ to come into your life, to lead your life, and you've been on this journey Maybe it's been awkward, maybe it's been up and down, but you are in relationship with Christ. You have a union with Him, and John understands this. However, he's identified in the church at that time, not only as maybe there's opposition against how you really come into that union, but those who are in union with Christ have sort of fallen out of fellowship with Christ because of sin and other things, and they have lost the communion with Christ. Have you experienced the difference between a union with Christ and communion? We mentioned marriages, right? When you stand before uh, someone who marries you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, you make a covenant marriage. You come into a union relationship with that person at a whole new level, even if you've been courting them for a number of years. But you can immediately fall out of communion with your spouse Maybe even on the honeymoon night, there's awkwardness. Sin maybe comes into play because of attitudes. It's just the frustration of the wedding. I don't know. But you move on through your married life, and the question is, are you still in communion with your spouse, even though you have this union? This is very important for you to get. Because when we deal with the soul issue, the sin issue, the guilt issue, the hope for salvation issue, We are asking you to examine yourself. But I know what the adversary wants to do. In examining yourself, many times he will pull you in some directions as a Christian believer that cause you to fall into very, um, well, I'd say false guilt, but very uh, much an insecure position in your relationship with God. Um, Have any of you ever, like, thought that maybe you should study about 
diseases and things, especially as you get older and you spill some creeks and some aches and some pains, that kind of thing. And you Google something. Maybe you Google uh, heart disease or you Google cancer or you uh, Google diabetes or, you know, uh, all perforated ulcers, whatever it is. And you read about that and then you start to get consumed with the symptoms of it. And then you sort of become a, a hypochondriac and you think, oh my gosh, my left side doesn't seem to be feeling that good. Oh, I got, I got those pain levels going on. And all of a sudden, you can talk yourself into thinking, I've got that, right? You become hyper-anxiety because you're focused on it, right? And sometimes you do, and it's probably good that you learn those things, right? And, and all that. But sometimes you can talk yourself into being in a place that's really just not true of where you're at. If you examine your life, if you let the light shine on the sin issues, there is a chance that you can come into um, some spiritual uh, hypochondria and not believe that you are saved. And Satan will do this type of thing about everybody. Well, look at you. Aren't you a loser? You claim to be a Christ follower, and your life, (laughs) you're not being obedient. You don't have any relationship. And it's a still small voice. It just chatters there. You don't have the union with Christ. Well, Paul, I mean, John's very conscious of this. And so let's go back to that verse. In verse um, 3 of chapter 2, he says this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Any of you made a commitment to follow Christ and, and you've heard other people give their testimony, and they say, I came to be a Christ follower, and, and I just love Jesus so much. And you're thinking after you made that decision, well, I, I don't have those loving feelings that much. And then, well, Am I really saved? Have I really come into union with Christ? And then you start to examine yourself, and you still have some of those wants and those longings, and you fall in some of those other ways, and you go, well, I, I don't know. I don't think it took. Maybe I need to pray that prayer again or resubmit myself to surrender to Christ and invite him to come and lead my life. And, and so you sort of get into this spiritual hypochondriac state, and you're going like, I don't think that I'm saved. John knew this, and so what he's saying here, and you need to understand there's Greek tenses to this. When he says, we know that we have come to know That's actually in uh, the perfect tense, which means something in the past happened. We've come to know experientially a relation. We have come to know Christ, Him. And because we've come to know, we keep His commands. That's in the present tense. So I am doing something in the present tense based on something that happened in the perfect or past tense. And so you as a believer, if you are in union with Christ, you need to understand this. This is not about you doubting your salvation. In fact, he deals with it later on in this letter, and we'll circle back around to this doubt. It's that when you are a Christ follower in union with Christ, you need to examine your life, and the examination doesn't have to do with feeling as much as it has to do with the desire to obey and to please God. Is that desire there, to obey and please God? Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Charles Purgeon put it this way, an unchanged life is the sign of an uncleansed heart. 
an unchanged life is the sign of an uncleansed heart if you desire to obey God then you can be assured that you know him even though maybe not everything's lining up like you know he's pleased with so don't fall into that trap but if you don't have a desire to obey God and to see a changed life then you have good reason to question if you're in union with Christ to begin with and it was their salvation he goes on but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him, in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So what he does, he takes this big turn and he just centers it. Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you at a place with your soul where you desire for God to change your life and to be obedient to him? And in that obedience, there is love that is perfected, is the term in it. A love that is perfected. In the English Standard Version, that verse, it said this way, By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him, that's communion, right? Ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I want to walk in that direction. And as you walk in that direction, and you continue to cultivate time in His Word, time serving His purposes, beginning with your own family members or maybe those immediately around you in your workplace, God begins to change you day in and day out into the likeness of Christ. It's not some big magic wand that happens. And what you have to do is not get all wrapped up in how are things with my soul. Oh my gosh, I fell here, there. No, we have a Savior. Remember, we talked about it last week. Past, present, and future sins. But are you on a trajectory of a changed life? A changed life that wants to abide in Christ. And by abiding, He perfects and changes you from one day to the next. Union with Christ. Do you have a relationship with Him? Communion with Christ. Do you have fellowship with Him? We have the opportunity this morning to do something in remembrance of our Lord, and that is to participate in communion. And with communion, we have a chance to confess any sin. This verse from last week, which we looked at, which gets misinterpreted often, is if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This verse predominantly is speaking to those who are not believers, who are not in union with Christ, who do not have a relationship with Christ. If you acknowledge your sin and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, repent of your sins, good news, good news, good news. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness so that confession from that verse is referring to that past tense you don't need to confess your sins every day to be in right standing with God he's forgiven you past present and future but we are called to confess as we said last week when we come to Jesus Christ we confess so that we can be forgiven after we are saved by Jesus Christ we confess because we are forgiven. Why? So that we have 
communion as well as union. So as we prepare our hearts to take communion, anyone who has a union with Christ is able to take the elements, the cup and the bread that's in a little container that's underneath your seat, nice and safe kind of thing. And we will remember the work of Christ because He forgave us of our sin. We confessed our sin. He is faithful and just and forgiven us of our sin. And purified us from all unrighteousness, man. I have the righteousness of Christ. I stand before Him because I have a high priest father. God has redeemed you and changed you. But as we go on the little journey of life, the wear and the tear and the eroding and the confrontations and everything, we can fall out of communion with Christ. And when we come to the Lord's table, it's a good time, Scripture says, to take an examination, to turn the light on. And if there are sins, to confess them, not to be forgiven, but sins to just acknowledge that, God, you are light and you there is no darkness at all. Thank you for forgiving me my sins. Enable me to move past that this very week. That verse was written, written by the Apostle Paul when there were a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. A lot. And so he just simply says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I want to give you a moment to do that. And as Joe and Jamie lead us in a little bit in a song, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to let the searchlight of God examine your heart. What's there that you're not too reticent about a pity? And then you don't have to get all big time repentant He's forgiven you that sin, but you need to repent, which means change your mind and your direction and acknowledge that you have sinned and you're fallen. And whether it's an action, an attitude, maybe it's a a broken relationship that needs to be healed and you contributed to it, maybe it's the demise of something with integrity in your life or morally, let the searchlight of God come as we come to the table. I want to read for you Psalm 51. This was a psalm poured out by David after he had sinned by committing adultery with someone else's wife Bathsheba and then even having the husband of that woman sent to the front lines of battle to be killed when she'd become pregnant he was in a dark place he would one day be known by us living in 2021 as a man after God's own heart. But in that particular juncture, he let the light of God shine on him. He had been ignoring it. He'd been obstructing it. He'd been closing his eyes. But the prophet Nathan came to him and and called him out. It's you who've sinned. And these are the words back to God. Psalm 51. Maybe they're your words in your prayer with your heads bowed today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
against you and you only have I sinned God and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me yet you desired faithfulness in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones you have crushed rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity create oh create in me a pure heart oh God and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me but restore to me the sweet communion the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed O God you who are God my Savior my tongue will sing of your righteousness open my lips Lord and my mouth will declare your praise you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Lord, in these moments across this room, if there's someone who's never coming into a relationship with you, who doesn't have union with you because they've not confessed their sins, and realize that you're faithful and just to forgive them their sins and purify them from all unrighteousness. I pray in this prayer that they would surrender their life to you, repenting of their sins. We can't enumerate them all. Just can't. But turning from sin and turning to you and inviting you to come into their life as their Savior and Lord. They experience their guilt more heavy than they let anybody know. But today, Jesus, you are the Savior who's able to forgive them and take away that guilt. So if there's any head bowed and eyes closed who's never come into a personal relationship with Jesus, I invite you to simply pray, Dear Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sin. Thank you for dying on a cross for my sin, being raised from the grave, breaking the power of sin. I invite you to come into my life and from this day forward, as you enable me, I will choose to live for you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord and my leader, and my friend. For others this morning, you're at a place where maybe you're out of communion with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to hold the elements. We will partake of them together. But in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to sing along with this song. Allow this song to just be a fresh covering. He purifies us from all sin. For you to come back, if you've been far away, into sweet communion with the Lord. And afterwards, we'll partake, remembering the body that was broken and the blood that was shed.
to crimson saint he This is my body which is broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. Acknowledging this, this represented the blood that he would shed for the forgiveness of our sin. Blood represented a life poured out. In the eternal definitions of God, there had to be life that was given. Someone had to take the penalty for you of your sin and mine. And Jesus says, I'll do it. And he did. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Take in remembrance of the shed blood of the new covenant. Will you stand with me? I'm going to ask uh, Jamie and Joe to sing back through that song, at least a couple verses of it. In quiet reflection, we acknowledge that Jesus paid it all. Have you made a commitment to be a Christ follower this morning in the privateness of your own heart? I want you to take a bold stand and make it a bit more public. 
There's a connect card in your back that says, I'm committing my life to Christ on the back. Take that. Check that box. And check the next box that says, I want to be baptized. Two weeks from today. Five o'clock. Our house. Rabbits and all. (laughs) Jesus said, if you deny me before the Father, I will deny you before... For others, I'll deny you before the Father. There was something about a public declaration. And some of you have been Christ followers for a while, but you've never taken that public declaration of baptism. You need to grab that card too. Check it. Put it in the box. Come give it to me. Let's have a celebration of new life, of baptisms, because Jesus paid it all. And so as we leave this morning, not in quiet reflection, but as a declaration to the world, I want us to sing this again, and I want to hear you. I want to let your soul fill up with the Spirit's strength. The Christ who we just celebrated through communion. Get this. The God of the universe. Son of God. That Christ dwells within you as a Christ follower. He gives witness to his work. So let's sing it out, Joe. Let's celebrate that Jesus paid it all. And we'll see you next week for Mother's Day and the next week for Baptism, our house.